0: Well, good morning. It's uh, nice to be back with you. And uh, since Jim started off this morning with a funny story, I'm going to start off with a true and amusing story. Yours was probably true also uh, before I introduce my lecture. And this story concerns uh, a good friend of mine whom most of you also have heard of and may have uh, may have heard in person, John Dominic Crossan. And Dom Crossan is one of the Uh, masters of the spontaneous and witty one-liner, and this story is an example of that. He was giving some lectures in Portland, Oregon, in my home parish, Trinity Episcopal Cathedral, about a year ago, and uh, my wife was hosting the event, and it was a Friday evening, Saturday day lecture series, And as he began his talks on Saturday morning, he said to those of us who were there, I want to tell you about something that happened last night after the lecture. He said, I was signing books, and a student from the local seminary came up to me, and uh, footnote, uh, there's only one seminary in Portland, Oregon. It's Western Conservative Evangelical Baptist Seminary, and, and all of those adjectives are important, And uh, so so we in the audience knew that, okay, this is a student from a conservative seminary. And uh, uh, Dom continued his story. He said, uh, and as I was signing the student's book, the the student said to me, I told my professor that I was coming to hear you tonight. And my professor said to me, you're going to hear Crossan? Why, he's to the left of Borg. Okay? (laughs) But now, that's not, that's not the punchline yet. <laughs> the story continues. Uh, so, Crossan said, so I said to the student, please give your professor my best regards and tell him that the real problem is that both Borg and Crossen are to the right of Jesus and rumor has it that Jesus is to the right of God. <laughs> Well, let me make one more comment before I turn to the topic of this morning's lecture. Uh, Our time frame is from now until 11.15, so there'll be some time for uh, responses, Q&A, which I uh, cherish very much. I don't think my lecture is more than 40 to 45 minutes. But I need to tell you up front that that at 11.15, I need to disappear immediately. I have to get to the airport uh, for a flight that leaves uh, very shortly after noon. So I apologize in advance if any of you were hoping to have a word with me right after the lecture. um, I will um, not quite vanish like Jesus ascending into heaven, but, but almost that quickly and up into the air. Okay. So, let me begin by saying how pleased and honored I am to be part of this celebration of the 125th anniversary of Albert Schweitzer's birth. And I'm grateful both to the Divinity School for inviting me to uh, present the Cole lectures and to devote one of them to the legacy of Albert Schweitzer. And I'm grateful also to Thurston Moore, one of the organizers of the Schweitzer Symposium, who um, uh, first suggested that one of these lectures could perhaps be about the enduring significance of Schweitzer. So the title of my talk, as you know from the bulletin, is Jesus Today, the Legacy of Schweitzer. And as it suggests, what I'm going to talk about is Albert Schweitzer's significance for Jesus scholarship in the 20th century and indeed up to the very present time. I am a great admirer of Schweitzer. Uh, I honestly don't know how a person could not be but I'm an admirer of him not simply as the uh, manifoldly gifted human being that he was, but also for his uh, deeply significant contribution to New Testament scholarship, books on both Jesus and Paul. He was utterly remarkable and utterly brilliant. And in addition to all the other accomplishments for which he is known, He had written two major books on the historical Jesus by the time he was 30. Now, I've forgotten some of the details of his uh, uh, manifold gifts, but I also know that he was an expert on Bach, a concert organist, uh, a president or dean of a theological faculty, all of this by age 30, plus writing two major books on the historical Jesus by this age. And these two books set the agenda for Jesus and gospel scholarship for a century, and the issue that he made central, namely the claim that Jesus had an apocalyptic eschatology, is still the central issue in the discipline today. The first of these two books is called in English, The Mystery of the Kingdom of God, published in German in 1901. Uh, Schweitzer was 26 when it was actually published, but I assume he finished it when he was 25. The second of these books is the more famous one, published in 1906 in German. The English title is The Quest of the Historical Jesus. Uh, The book in English is 400 pages long, the first 330 pages treat the history of the quest for the historical Jesus up to the time of Schweitzer, beginning with Raimarus's book on the historical Jesus published in 1778, and the last 70 pages of this book provide a crystallization of his understanding of Jesus, which is more fully developed in the earlier book. This book, as I mentioned, was published in 1906 when he was 31, but again, I assume he finished it at least a year earlier at age 30. His insights in these books are extraordinary, and his prose is exquisite, even in English translation. I remember still the excitement with which as a 22 year old I read the quest of the historical Jesus. It kind of blew my mind to be candid with you, but I found it to be utterly absorbing and I have taught the book several times in my life as a professor. About the 1906 book, John Hayes says in his Anthology of Jesus Scholarship, I'll tell you when the quotation begins, Hayes wrote, Schweitzer's book on the quest for the historical Jesus is, quote, one of the most influential books of the 20th century, end of quote. Notice he didn't say in theology or in biblical scholarship, but of all books, it is one of the most influential books of the 20th century. And then Hayes continues, quote, in so far as New Testament scholarship is concerned, it probably has to be classified as the most important work of modern times." End of quote. And again, not to belabor the point, but all of this by the time he was 30, he's a man around whom it is easy to feel humble. So let me now give you a roadmap of what I'm going to talk about in this lecture this morning. There will be three parts. In part one, I'm going to provide a crystallization of Schweitzer's understanding of Jesus, the apocalyptic Jesus. In part two, I will talk about the apocalyptic Jesus in the discipline today, or the issue of apocalyptic eschatology in the discipline today. And then in part three, Schweitzer's Christ mysticism. So I turn to part one, Schweitzer's understanding of Jesus. To provide you with two summary phrases to encapsulate his understanding of Jesus, Schweitzer's own phrase is that he sees Jesus within the framework of, quote, thoroughgoing eschatology. It is now more common for scholars to refer to that as apocalyptic eschatology. And to expand that uh, two-word phrase slightly with a paragraph summary statement, and then I'll unpack the paragraph summary statement, Schweitzer saw Jesus as follows. Jesus expected the supernatural intervention of God in his own time, in his own lifetime actually, and that meant the imminent coming of the kingdom of God that would bring history as we know it to a close. Jesus expected the end time events of the resurrection of the dead, the last judgment and the establishment of the everlasting kingdom. And he expected that he himself would be transformed into the apocalyptic son of man who would rule over the everlasting kingdom. Now stated in bare bones fashion like that, the view may seem extraordinary, but it actually accounts for an exceptional amount of material in the synoptic gospels. And let me now develop that by elaborating his understanding of Jesus under four points. In shorthand, the four points will be called the expectation, the key, the teachings, and the failure. I begin with the expectation. Schweitzer reconstructed an apocalyptic scenario, that is a scenario of events that were expected within the Judaism of Jesus' time, according to Schweitzer, a series of events that would usher in, in rough-and-ready language, the end of the world, not the dissolution of the uh, physical universe necessarily, but the utter transformation of existence as we know it. The first of the elements in this apocalyptic scenario is that the prophet Elijah would return. The last book of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, speaks of Elijah as the coming one, the one who will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the advent of Elijah would be followed by a period of radical repentance, radical repentance in the face of the imminent coming of the end. And that period of radical repentance would be followed by the uprising of the powers of evil which would introduce the messianic woes, a period of intense suffering that would precede the coming of the end. And then finally, God would intervene to bring that period of uh, the messianic woes, the tribulation, if you will, to an end by sending the kingdom of God and the Messiah. Well, Schweitzer says... If we look carefully at the Synoptic Gospels, we discover that this is what Jesus expected to unfold in his own time, and that Jesus saw himself as playing a central role in the unfolding of this apocalyptic scenario. And that leads me to the second point, the key. The key, Schweitzer said, is found in the 10th and 11th chapters of Matthew, and as I recall a detail from about 30 years ago in my own reading, I think Schweitzer was struck by the apocalyptic significance of Matthew 10 and 11 at age 19 while reading a Greek New Testament under a tree during military maneuvers while he was doing his compulsory military service. So at 19, he's sitting there with a Greek New Testament, finds the key. And let me now tell you in what way he felt Matthew 10 and 11 were the key to seeing that Jesus operated with this kind of scenario in his mind. At the beginning of Matthew 10, Jesus sends his disciples out on a mission in the midst of the ministry. And amongst other things, he tells them to proclaim the kingdom of God. And he also tells them to go nowhere among the Gentiles, but to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He also tells them, all of this still in Matthew 10, that they can expect to be persecuted on this mission. And he details to some extent what that persecution will be like. And that warning of persecution climaxes with Matthew 10:23, where Jesus says, truly I say unto you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The Son of Man will arrive before you even complete this mission that you are being sent out on in the midst of Jesus' ministry. Uh, The coming Son of Man motif will be crucially important to Schweitzer. This is just one instance of it. Then in Matthew 11, we are told that messengers come from John the baptizer who is now in prison, and the messengers ask Jesus on behalf of John, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now we have conventionally thought that uh, John's messengers are asking Jesus on behalf of John, are you the Messiah or shall we look for another? Now, Schweitzer says, what they're really asking is, are you Elijah? Because the coming one, the one who is to come, that's a phrase from Malachi 4.5, and it refers to the return of Elijah. So John is asking Jesus, are you Elijah? Are you the one who comes before the great and terrible day of the Lord? And then in the rest of Matthew 11, Jesus says, John is Elijah and then adds whoever has ears to hear let them hear if John is Elijah then the coming one has already come and if John is Elijah who does that mean Jesus must be let those who have ears to hear hear he understands that he is saying something mysterious to the crowd but something mysterious that perhaps those with a discernment can figure out. So, Jesus, in a way, has fulfilled the first element in that apocalyptic scenario. Elijah has already returned. I turn to the third point here in developing this, the teachings. Schweitzer argues that the radical teachings of Jesus, seen especially in the Sermon on the Mount, are an ethic for the few remaining months before this world comes to an end. To use Schweitzer's own phrase, they are an interim ethic, an ethic for that brief interval of time. And thus Schweitzer says, when you read these radical sayings like, sell all that you have and give your money to the poor, leave father and mother behind, turn the other cheek Uh, love your enemies, etc. This is the radical repentance that must precede the coming of the end. And if you really thought that the world had only six months or a year to last, you could live this way. And he also argues that the Lord's Prayer is in fact an eschatological prayer. And when you listen to the Lord's Prayer, you can kind of hear it in there. When you think of that petition, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. The followers of Jesus are to pray for the coming of that kingdom that is at hand. And then the near ending of the Lord's Prayer, um, deliver us uh, from the evil one. Do not put us to the test. The disciples are to pray to be spared from the suffering of the end time, from being put to the test by the period of messianic woes. And so Jesus has sent the disciples out on this mission, expecting that before they they return, as they undergo those messianic woes, God will intervene, send the kingdom of God, and transform Jesus himself into the Son of Man. And this leads to the fourth point, the failure, the mistake, if you will. The disciples return. They come back from that mission, and Schweitzer suggests this is something utterly unexpected to Jesus, and he realizes that he was wrong, that the suffering that the disciples underwent or were to undergo didn't happen. The end has not come. And so Schweitzer argues, Jesus concludes that he himself must bear the messianic woes in his own person, must bear the suffering of the end time. Jesus concludes that he must die, but he can't just jump off a cliff. He has to provoke the authorities to kill him. And so Jesus goes to Jerusalem deliberately to get himself crucified. He enters the city in a provocative fashion riding on an animal that symbols kingship. He performs a provocative act in the court of the temple, the overturning of the tables of the money changers, all for the sake of seeking to get the authorities to act. He engages in verbal conflict with the Pharisees and Sadducees and temple authorities. Again, all for the sake of provoking them to take action against him. They do. And of course, um, Jesus is crucified. And as he is on the cross, he now expects... That as the one who is to be the Messiah is being crucified, that God will finally have to intervene. Jesus deliberately gets himself executed for the sake of provoking God's intervention. And of course, he's wrong. And the paragraph, the brief paragraph with which Schweitzer ends the main body of the quest of the historical Jesus is very evocative in this respect. There's an important epilogue that I'll quote later that comes after the main body, but this is the way the main body of the book ends. Schweitzer writes, at midday of the same day, It was the 14th of Nisan, and in the evening the Paschal Lamb would be eaten. Jesus cried aloud and expired. He had chosen to remain fully conscious to the last, end of quote. And what I hear in the way Schweitzer words that paragraph, I'm not sure if he intended this or not, Jesus chose to remain fully conscious to the last. He expected God to intervene and was waiting for that. And of course, he cried aloud and expired. What were Jesus' last words? Well, according to our earliest gospel, the gospel of Mark, his last words were, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he lies, as he hangs dying, he realizes that perhaps he was wrong about all of this. One of the more famous quotations from his 1906 book summarizes this understanding of Jesus' attempt to force the coming of the kingdom, first by sending out the disciples, then by seeking his own death. It's a wonderful paragraph. Schweitzer wrote, quote, In the knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, that is, in the belief that he will be transformed into the Son of Man, okay, I'll start it again. In the knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, Jesus lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn. Parentheses, that's his sending out to the disciples and his expectation that the kingdom would come before they return, resuming the quotation. And so he throws himself upon it. Then the wheel of history does turn and it crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. That is his victory and his reign. Three concluding comments about Schweitzer's sketch of Jesus. The first, it's important, at least in passing, to note that Schweitzer did not conclude that the quest for the historical Jesus was impossible. It's commonly said, Schweitzer showed that the quest for the historical Jesus was impossible. Not at all. Schweitzer was reasonably confident that we could know something about the historical Jesus and he was reasonably confident about the probability of his own historical reconstruction of Jesus. So he did not conclude that the quest was impossible. Rather, he concluded that it was theologically irrelevant that the Jesus whom we would find would be a stranger to our time, a thoroughly first century person who could not be brought into our time. So theologically irrelevant, but not historically impossible. Second comment, very important one. One might think that Schweitzer's portrait of Jesus as a mistaken prophet of apocalyptic eschatology and he wasn't just mistaken about some small detail, he was mistaken about the animating vision that drove his life, one might think that that would lead one to conclude that Christianity is founded on a huge mistake. For Schweitzer, not at all. In his own judgment, this is the second point, his portrait does not threaten the truth of Christianity. Rather, for Schweitzer, the Jesus who matters is the living Christ, the spiritual Christ, the risen Christ, the Christ who sent him to Africa, who still lives today. And I'll return to that point in my conclusion. And the third concluding comment, which also serves as the transition to my next sentence this section. Schweitzer made apocalyptic eschatology central to New Testament scholarship. By mid-century, apocalyptic eschatology had become the dominant paradigm for understanding Jesus, the Gospels, and early Christianity. Schweitzer's portrait was trimmed down just a little bit. Scholars no longer spoke with confidence that Jesus sought to compel God to to send the kingdom by getting crucified. Uh, They didn't see quite that level of deliberation in his uh, going to Jerusalem and so forth. But the basic claim that Jesus expected the coming of the son of man and the supernatural kingdom of God, if not in his own lifetime, at least in his own generation became the common property of most New Testament scholars. The apocalyptic paradigm dominated German New Testament scholarship There was considerable resistance to it in British New Testament scholarship, but because of the influence of German New Testament scholarship in North America, it became the dominant view in North America as well. So I turn to part two, Jesus and apocalyptic eschatology today. And here I'm going to develop three brief points. The first is that I want to underline that the mid-century consensus has come to an end. I need to qualify that immediately so that I'm not misunderstood. In the last 20 years or so, the mid-century consensus that Jesus operated with an apocalyptic eschatology has ceased to be a consensus. Its collapse as a consensus began to become visible in the mid-1980s, to a large extent through the work of the Jesus Seminar. But the important clarification is this, it's not that apocalyptic eschatology is gone from the discipline, rather the consensus is no longer a consensus. Instead, the discipline is about evenly divided between scholars who would still argue for apocalyptic eschatology as the paradigm within which to understand Jesus and scholars who would argue for a non-apocalyptic paradigm. And it's very difficult to say whether one or the other of those is in a slight majority. It might be, but what we can say with confidence is that it's a major division within the discipline. My second comment is to say something about why the consensus as a consensus has eroded. The first comment has to do with the undermining of the coming son of man sayings in the last 40 years or so amongst Jesus and gospel scholars. Now the coming son of man sayings include, of course, Matthew 10, 23, Uh, You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Uh, They also include those passages which speak of the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven uh, with the sun and the moon being darkened and the stars falling from the sky and the the angels gathering the elect from the four corners of the earth. And they also speak of the coming of the Son of Man uh, uh, in judgment and so forth. Okay, those are the coming Son of Man sayings. Now, those sayings are very important as foundational stones for the apocalyptic eschatological paradigm. They're foundational for Schweitzer and for Johannes Weiss before him, and foundational also for the successors of Schweitzer. But beginning in the late 1950s, scholars began to wonder if those sayings really went back to Jesus. Philip Fielhauer wrote an article in the late 1950s arguing that case. Norman Perrin in his 1967 book, Rediscovering the Teachings of Jesus, made a strong case that the coming Son of Man sayings do not go back to Jesus. And by the way, uh, those scholars who don't think they go back to Jesus, and and I'm among them, would argue that the coming Son of Man sayings are really second coming of Jesus sayings, that they refer to the second coming of Jesus and that language about the second coming of Jesus didn't emerge until after Easter, that is, within the early Christian community rather than during the ministry of Jesus himself. Now something that was overlooked for a couple of decades as those coming Son of Man sayings uh, were increasingly not attributed to Jesus. Namely, if you eliminate the coming Son of Man sayings from the authentic sayings of Jesus, the primary exegetical foundation of the apocalyptic Jesus is gone. Without the coming Son of Man sayings, there are very few texts in the Gospels that require being read within the framework of apocalyptic eschatology. Let me also say, if the coming Son of Man sayings do go back to Jesus, then I think apocalyptic eschatology is right, and I'm wrong. But with those gone, a primary foundation is gone. What is left is a couple of Kingdom of God sayings that refer to imminence. There's lots of coming Kingdom of God sayings, but it's only if they refer to imminence in a way that implies supernatural intervention that you're back to apocalyptic eschatology. Second reason for the erosion of the consensus has been the emphasis on the wisdom teaching of Jesus in the last 20 to 25 years of scholarship. Now, the wisdom teaching of Jesus He includes the parables of Jesus, plus what scholars call the aphorisms, those short, memorable sayings of Jesus, the memorable one-liners of Jesus. And during the period of the apocalyptic consensus, not much attention was paid to those, except perhaps to the parables, as parables of the coming of the kingdom. And the parables sometimes do have an eschatological referent But it may well be that that eschatological referent of the parables is due to their redaction as well, rather than it being intrinsically built into the parable. But in any case, in the last 20 years, the wisdom teaching of Jesus has become a major focus of uh, Jesus' research. And the more importance you give to that wisdom teaching, the harder it is to reconcile the image of Jesus that emerges from the wisdom material with the notion that he expected in the near future God to supernaturally intervene. The wisdom teaching of Jesus, I'll put it extremely here, almost has the flavor of the teaching of the Buddha. It's an enlightenment kind of wisdom that's being spoken here to see differently And to the extent that you read this wisdom material that way, it's very hard to put it together with somebody who is saying, oh, and by the way, the judgment is right at hand and you better damn well be ready. Schweitzer never put it that way. I'm putting it very crudely. Okay, okay? I mean, to try to reconcile a preacher of apocalyptic eschatology with this world subverting wisdom that we see in the parables and aphorisms of Jesus is difficult. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. Third reason the consensus has eroded uh, is a more political reading of kingdom of God language and of Jesus' mission and message as a whole. And this more political reading is part of the work of a number of scholars, some of whom I mentioned last night But we're inclined to think that kingdom of God does not so much refer to something that God is going to bring into existence through a supernatural act, but that it is what we might call a theopolitical term, a term that combines theology and politics, religion and politics, and that the natural meaning of the phrase kingdom of God in the Jewish homeland in the first century would have been What life on earth would be like if God were king and Caesar were not king? What life on earth would be like if God were king and Herod was not king? And again, the more one moves toward a political reading of kingdom of God and the mission and message of Jesus, the less likely it seems that Jesus expected God to bring it all to an end very, very soon. So those are the reasons why the mid-century consensus has uh, disappeared as a consensus. Last major point underneath what's going on in the discipline today. The announcement, if you will, that apocalyptic eschatology was no longer the consensus has provoked um, a fairly strong reaction among scholars who are still convinced that apocalyptic eschatology is the most uh, comprehensive paradigm for understanding the mission of Jesus. So there are a number of books now arguing once again for apocalyptic eschatology. This is why I say the discipline is very much divided. The earliest of these books actually preceded the uh, announcement that the consensus is no longer a consensus. It's the Ed Sanders book, Jesus and Judaism, published in 1985. And though Sanders differs in some details from Schweitzer, there is a lot of continuity with Schweitzer's understanding. And there's something very convincing about Ed Sanders' book. This is why it's a difficult time in the discipline, convincing arguments on both sides. Uh, Sanders points out that John the baptizer had an apocalyptic eschatology, that Paul had an apocalyptic eschatology, and much of the New Testament has an apocalyptic eschatology. Well, if Jesus' own teacher had an apocalyptic eschatology and his followers had an apocalyptic eschatology, what makes more sense than to say that the middle term, Jesus, must have had an apocalyptic eschatology as well. And for Sanders that takes the form of what Sanders calls temple restoration eschatology. That what Jesus expected was that God would send a new temple to replace the existing temple in Jerusalem and that Jesus and his disciples would become the rulers of Uh, the messianic age from the new temple in the New Jerusalem. And of course as for Schweitzer, uh, so also for Sanders, Jesus is uh, simply very wrong about that. Paula Fredrickson, uh, uh, formerly a student of Ed Sanders, uh, also argues for apocalyptic eschatology. Uh, John Meyer, uh, in his massive two-volume, uh, soon-to-be-three-volume treatment of the mission and message of Jesus, uh, argues uh, for a both-and-eschatology that Jesus expected the coming of the kingdom of God in the near future but also spoke of it as present, so he therefore is arguing for apocalyptic eschatology and also for a present eschatology. And then two very recent books, Dale Allison's very fine book, Jesus, Millenarian Prophet, about two years old now, makes probably the best contemporary case, most thorough contemporary case for apocalyptic eschatology. And Bart Ehrman, a professor at Duke University, has also published a very accessible book on Jesus and eschatology, which basically makes the Schweizerian case again and I unfortunately can't recall the title of Bart's book, Ehrman is spelled E-H-R-M-A-N, it's highly readable, and for me, highly annoying, but that's just because we disagree, okay, okay, okay. Now, the debate within the discipline signaled by these books and by the collapse of the consensus is not so much about the details of individual verses The debate is really between two competing gestalts. It's a debate between two paradigms, two very different paradigms for trying to make sense of what we find in the Gospels, the apocalyptic paradigm and the non-apocalyptic paradigm. And because it's a debate between two paradigms, it's a very difficult debate to resolve in any conclusive way. Because your paradigm will, to a large extent, shape what bits of the teachings of Jesus you think are authentic, and which ones are the product of the early church, and they'll also shape how you read them. So what you end up talking about is what are the foundations for each of these alternative paradigms or gestalts, and even then the debate doesn't move very far toward resolution. In my own case, for example, I would grant that John the Baptizer probably had an apocalyptic eschatology. I would also say there are all kinds of signs in the Gospels that Jesus disagrees with John in some significant ways, and that Jesus' preaching sounds very, very different from what we hear in the little snippets we're given of John the Baptizer's preaching, and I would argue that the uh, apocalyptic eschatology in the Gospels themselves and in Paul is an inference drawn from the resurrection of Jesus, that within the Jewish tradition, resurrection was an end-time event. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then the end must be near. So I see that language about the coming Son of Man to be the expectation of Jesus' return and the notion that the end is at hand to be an inference once again drawn from the Easter experience, well, that's a gestalt. And then there's the opposing gestalt. And it's very, very difficult to resolve a dueling paradigms debate. So let me, for a few minutes, report to you I think some very creative and provocative suggestions from my colleague John Dominic Crossan. Uh, Dom and I and Steve Patterson and Dale Allison are writing a book together about the debate about apocalyptic eschatology. And I've seen Dom's contribution to the book. And Dom's approach is very interesting. What he says is this. He's trying to move the debate forward. And what he says is this, and he's saying this to those who affirm an apocalyptic eschatology. He's saying, let me for the moment grant that you are right, that Jesus had an apocalyptic eschatology. Now let me ask you to get a little bit more specific. I'm still doing Dom here, okay? Uh, now let me ask you to get a little bit more specific and tell me what kind of apocalyptic eschatology you think Jesus had. And Dom then comes up with six choices. There are six pairs of words, and you, you, uh, 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 you can see these as six spectrums, I suppose, and I won't take too long to do these, okay? But the first question he wants to ask of those who affirm an apocalyptic eschatology for Jesus, destructive, apocalyptic, or transformative? That is, are we talking about the destruction of the world here or the transformation of the world? Second pair, material transformation or social transformation? Are we talking about grapes as big as basketballs? And rivers running with wine? This is biblical imagery. They don't talk about basketballs, but they do talk about big grapes, okay? okay? That would be material transformation. Are we talking about material transformation or social transformation? Namely, the transformation of the kingdoms of this earth from domination systems into just systems for distributing God's world and so forth. And Crossen and would say, if you try to imagine the minds of these Jewish apocalypticists, not Jesus himself necessarily now, but these Jewish apocalyptices. If you said, well, are you interested in huge grapes or are you interested in the transformation of the structures of society so that they are just and so forth, what of that is negotiable? Okay, third pair, exclusive or inclusive, or cross and sometimes says negative or positive. Exclusive eschatology would mean only the elect will be saved and everybody else is gonna get it. Inclusive would mean it's inclusive not only of the Jews or of the elect within the Jews or also of Gentiles and within the Hebrew Bible and the Jewish apocalyptic tradition, you can find both, okay? His next pair of options, primary or secondary. Primary apocalyptic would mean this is really the center of Jesus' message and that everything Jesus is saying about how you should live is, this is how you should live because the judgment is coming soon. Secondary would mean this is how you should be living in any case. And by the way, the judgment is soon. Okay? The fifth one, instantive, the word instant turned into a what? A substantive? Uh, instantive or durative. Instantive apocalyptic eschatology would mean God's going to do it in an instant. Durative would mean it's a process that's going to take some time. And. Crossen argues that Paul seems to have had a durative eschatology. He speaks of Jesus as the first fruits of those who have been raised from the dead, but history goes on and so forth. And sixth and finally, if you advocate apocalyptic es- eschatology, are you thinking that the human response is to be passive or active? Or he also puts it as expective? or cooperative, and what this pair of choices means. Passive means we wait for God to do it. We may pray and all of that, but we're waiting for God to do it. Active or cooperative means we are cooperating in the process whereby this comes into existence. Now, Crossan says, The debate will get nowhere if it's simply apocalyptic eschatology, not apocalyptic eschatology. We've got to start talking about if apocalyptic eschatology, what kind? And then of course his own shrewd strategy here is to the extent that you affirm the second half rather than the first half of each pair of those words, you move more and more toward a socio-political reading of apocalyptic language a reading of Apocalyptic that affirms both the continuation and the transformation of the world. So it's shrewd, but I think it's important too. Part three, which is also my conclusion, so even though I'm now at 46 minutes, I think I can do this in five minutes, okay? Schweitzer's Christ Mysticism. Whatever the outcome of the debate about Jesus and apocalyptic eschatology, there is a second dimension of Schweitzer's legacy that is vitally important for both New Testament scholarship and the church, namely his Christ mysticism. By this I mean that he had a strong and I assume experiential sense of the reality of the spirit of Jesus, the risen Christ, the living Christ. I assume, though I do not know this for sure, but I would be surprised if I'm wrong here. Um, I have not reread him to see if I'm right, but I assume that he was a mystic himself. By mystic, I mean a person who has vivid and typically frequent experiences of the sacred. And for a mystic, God is not an article of belief, but an element of experience. For a Christ mystic, the risen Christ is not a doctrine to be believed in, but a reality who is known. And Schweitzer himself affirmed that the truth of Christianity is grounded in this kind of experience of the risen Christ, not in historical knowledge or in doctrinal certitude. Listen to these two brief quotations from the epilogue to the quest of the historical Jesus, and in both quotations, he's contrasting historical knowledge of Jesus with the spiritual Jesus or the spiritual Christ. Schweitzer writes, but the truth is, it is not Jesus as historically known but Jesus as spiritually arisen within people who is significant for our time and can help it. Not the historical Jesus, but the spirit which goes forth from him and in the spirits of people strives for new influence and rule is that which overcomes the world. And the second quotation makes the same point slightly more compactly. Quote, Jesus means something to our world because a mighty spiritual force streams forth from him and flows through our time also. This fact can neither be shaken nor confirmed by any historical discovery. It is the solid foundation of Christianity. Schweitzer's awareness of the reality of the risen Christ is an awareness that we very much need in the modern world, the modern church, and in the modern academy of religious studies and theology. Without a sense of the reality that lies behind the words of the Bible and the words of our doctrines, our beliefs remain hypotheses, and as hypotheses, they aren't all that persuasive. To echo Paul from 1 Corinthians 15, if the risen Christ is not a living reality, our faith is in vain, and our preaching is in vain, and we are of all people most to be pitied. Schweitzer knew the living Christ, and in his affirmation of the living Christ lies the future of the church, I think the recovery of spirituality and Christ mysticism and God mysticism. Schweitzer knew the experience that lies at the heart of the Christian life, and that experience leads to a relational vision of the Christian life. As I said last night, it seems to me that the Christian life is not primarily about believing but about a relationship with God as known in Jesus, with the living Christ, with the one who comes to us still today as one unknown. And with those words, I am beginning to allude to the famous paragraph with which Schweitzer ended the epilogue to his book on the quest. It is perhaps the most famous paragraph of 20th century theology, and I'm aware that perhaps half of you could recite it with me so rich and so moving that it has become the text of a Christian hymn. And it goes like this. And notice the present tense. Schweitzer speaking about the living Christ. Quote, He comes to us as one unknown, without a name. As of old by the lakeside, he came to those who knew him not. He speaks to us the same word, follow thou me. And he sets us to the tasks which he has to fulfill for our time. He commands, and to those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils, the conflicts, the sufferings which they shall pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. Thank you very much. Well, we have about 15 minutes for some uh, comments and questions, and I'm going to suggest that we proceed in the same way as we did last night, uh, half a minute or so of silence to just think about what you might want to ask about or comment about. If those pews are hard, you're welcome, but in silence, please. Keep the silence welcome to take a stretch break during the half minute. Uh, So I'll start my timer now and uh, get back to you in half a minute. And again, as I did last night, I'll go for um, gender alternation. I almost said alteration, but I think that's a different thing. (laughs) So who would like to get us started with a question or comment? Way in the back on the aisle. Yeah. I'm going I'm to stop you and ask you if you can say it a bit louder. So I, yeah. Did he view the ministry of Jesus? Did he view the ministry of Jesus as theologically irrelevant, inappropriate, because Jesus was mistaken and so forth? Yeah. Schweitzer obviously admired the historical Jesus greatly, refers to him as the immeasurably great man who dared to try to uh, uh, um, turn history to his own purpose and so forth and so forth. Um, And I, I see Schweitzer himself in his subsequent life living out a fair amount of the radical ethic of Jesus. So I guess I'm stumbling around here not being sure what Schweitzer would say about um, uh, whether what Jesus was doing during his lifetime was inappropriate or even irrelevant to us because of his being mistaken about such a foundational thing. Uh, I think logically, it would follow that much of the teaching of Jesus becomes irrelevant because of its being grounded in this mistake. That would not be true for all people who affirm an apocalyptic eschatology, but for Schweitzer, the Sermon on the Mount is an interim ethic. Well, what if the interim becomes 2,000 years? What happens to it? I mean, that's your question, I know. And I'm, I'm, I'm honestly not sure what he would say, so I'll let it go with that, okay? A man's question, okay, uh, over here. Okay, the the uh, question is based on the comment that um, uh, the notion of animal sacrifice within Judaism and the scapegoat and so forth, and and if Jesus is somehow um, living out a uh, scenario in relationship to that, how does that fit in with Schweitzer's own reverence for life and so forth? Uh, two comments. Um, Schweitzer... Schweitzer doesn't see Jesus as validating the sacrificial system by offering up his own life in accord with the sacrificial system. He sees Jesus as living out an apocalyptic scenario in which the righteous must suffer before God will send the end. So even though you could make the move from Jesus deliberately intending his own death as a way of bringing in the kingdom to Jesus seeing his own death as having salvific significance. You could make that move. That's not really how Schweitzer is doing it. So there is no validation of the sacrificial system as such in Schweitzer's understanding of what Jesus was up to. Uh, So, uh, I think Schweitzer could put together his portrait of Jesus very, very nicely with his subsequent uh, uh, philosophy of reverence for life, uh, which extended down to, I don't know, all life forms, insect world, uh, maybe even, I think, the germ world, I'm not so sure about that, but it's very thorough going, okay? There was a woman's question over here, yes? Yes. Um And I wonder what about and that like but could comment on role of outside of the nature of Could I comment on religious experience outside of Christianity in relationship to uh Uh, The spiritual life, basically? The idea of a spiritual force. Spiritual force, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, Again, speaking quite compactly, I'm persuaded myself that God or the sacred or the spirit and I use those terms interchangeably and use them comprehensively enough to include the Buddhist notion of no-thingness, okay? I'm I'm persuaded myself that, uh, I'll call it a reality now, that that reality which we signify with the words God, spirit, the sacred, and so forth, is experienced and known in all of the enduring religious traditions of the world as well as in most or all of the primordial traditions. I simply think that kind of experience is a human universal, not meaning that every human being has it, but that it occurs across cultures and across time. And I also myself think that that experience is the core of every enduring religious tradition. I like the language of uh, Fritjof Schuon um, which I know in part from Houston Smith, that uh, it's helpful to speak of the esoteric core of religion and the exoteric forms of religions, plural. And the esoteric core, the internal core of every religion is this kind of experience. And then the religious traditions themselves are the external forms, the exoteric forms, and the external forms are as different as the cultures within which each of the major religious traditions originate. To do that one other way, uh, this last winter at Oregon State University, uh, there was a conference got at 2000 that was downlinked by satellite television around the country, so some of you may have seen it or parts of it. And one of the things that I was most struck by is that we had speakers from the three Western religious traditions uh, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, uh, and, and uh, seven speakers altogether, and that all of us agreed uh, that um, uh, the sacred can be experienced. All of us saw religious traditions as vitally important, but as the external form which carries the experience, as it were, from one generation to the next and makes it accessible, and all of us agreed that the fruit of this kind of experience is a greater passion for compassion and justice, which is another way of saying, I think the kind of experience that Schweitzer is talking about and and that I'm talking about is at the heart of all of the living religious traditions. Okay. Yes, please. Would you t- uh, tell them there are events through Sunday? If anyone has questions, I'll be up front here. And I'll okay, are you Thurston? No, I'm wrong. You're wrong. Right. Okay, there are events through Sunday. If any of you have questions, there will be a person up here who can tell you more about the Schweitzer Symposium and so forth. Okay, yes, please. Yeah. Uh, in light of, based on your view of Jesus, uh, what do you see as the place of the Sermon on the Mount right on the left for contemporary ethics. Okay. Question is based on how I see Jesus. How do I see the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, the role of the radical ethic that we see in Jesus and so forth. Um, <clears throat> I, I see the Sermon on the Mount, of course, as a. Uh, Uh, collection pulled together by the author of Matthew's Gospel of individual sayings that were spoken many times in many different contexts and so forth. And I find um, uh, a real generalization here, but again for reasons of economy of time, I'll go this way. I find uh, the radical teaching of Jesus to be about primarily two matters, it seems to me. One is They are invitations to a radical centering in God and not in tradition or convention or culture. And still under that first point, they are invitations to a radically new way of seeing, Uh, new not in the sense that nobody before Jesus had ever talked that way, but new compared to convention, to an enlightenment way of seeing, if you will. And then the other major theme of the radical sayings is um, uh, a radical critique of, uh, like I think Jesus' sayings about wealth, if we individualize those sayings and start thinking of them as spoken to middle class and upper middle class people in our own time, I think we rip them out of their historical context. I'm not just trying to get myself and us off the hook, I trust, but I see those as Uh, indictments of the wealthy elites who are at the top of the domination system of Jesus time so I see the sayings about poverty and riches and so forth very often to have that political edge to them and uh, uh, so I think the the radical sayings have both that wisdom perception centering in the spirit edge and also let's call it a prophetic edge to them and thus I would see them as uh, being of uh, continuing relevance to our time. I think those remain uh, the, the central issues in human condition, in human life, the issues of blindness and seeing, the issues of bondage and liberation, of oppression and deliverance from oppression and so forth. So, okay, time for one more maybe, uh, ideally a woman's question or comment. And, uh, Let's see. Uh, uh, I'll, 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 I'll go to you. Yep. Mm-hmm. What would Schweitzer do with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the whole idea of the community? Okay, what would Schweitzer do with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the whole idea of the Essene community? Okay, well, of Essene community? One of those hypothetical questions, of course. Um, <clears throat> though, obviously, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered before he died. I don't know if he ever said anything about them. I think he would, you know. Um, I imagine <clears throat> that he would find well let me put it this way the, the community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls had a strongly developed apocalyptic eschatology uh, they really did expect uh, the kind of thing that Schweitzer was talking about um, uh, and it'd be interesting to run Dom Croson's six choices through what we know about the eschatology of the Dead Sea Scrolls community. Uh, there'd be differences between them and how Schweitzer sees Jesus. But I think Schweitzer would find in uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmation that apocalyptic eschatology was widespread um, and important in the Jewish social world of the first century. Since that was so brief, I will do one more. Okay, but I would love, okay, we'll go to you, yeah. Do I see Christ moving in a socio-political direction into the future, and if so, what does that say about the church today and the church of yesterday in terms of its forms? Um, forms in particular? Uh, not necessarily. Okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, again, big subject. I'll try to make a compact response. Uh, I think that much of, um, I'm gonna say Western Christianity, but it probably applies to Eastern Christianity as well. I think there has been, and I know it's almost cliche to say this, a Constantinian captivity of the church for 1,500 years or so. And by that, I simply mean uh, the accommodation of Christianity to dominant culture. And that this has resulted in, to a large extent, an individualization of Christianity and the transformation of Christianity into a religion that is concerned primarily with the afterlife, so that Christianity and conventional dominant culture can go hand in hand, okay? With uh, the collapse of Christendom, by the way, that wedding between Christianity and dominant culture is conventionally called Christendom. Christendom has come to an end sometime in the last half century. In Europe, it ended before then. Uh, But with the ending of that cultural expectation that everybody would be part of a church or part of some religious community, Christendom has come to an end. Uh, Now, the ending of Christendom which means that, as I put it last night, within 20 or 30 years or so, basically everybody who is part of a church will be there because they have chosen to be, because they want to be, and they're there with intention, creates the possibility of the church once again becoming an alternative culture, alternative to dominant culture, with a very different social vision, a very different vision of life. And so the chance for the church to become again, somewhat what it was before the Constantinian captivity of the church began is, um, I I think, quite hopeful, very exciting. Uh, uh, And right now we're still living in a time of the church when in many congregations, the congregations are made up of people who became Christian for conventional reasons and are just amazed at what's happening in the church and Christians who were there with a greater sense of uh, awareness of the radicalism of the biblical message. Um, And that period of uh, tension, uh, well, who knows? Maybe it'll go on and on. But but as the people who are there for conventional reasons uh, die off, There is a new future of some kind for the church. Well, uh, let me uh, again thank you for your attentiveness, your involvement here. I want you to take very seriously that you chose to spend two periods of time listening to talks about Jesus. That says something very good about you, I think. And it says something about how seriously you're taking your own spiritual journey. So I encourage you to take that with you in case it hasn't occurred to you to think of it that way. Thank you again.